Well, it is great to see your faces this morning. If you're a guest here at Providence, I want to welcome you here. We're glad that you're here with us and to worship the Lord. Uh, if you brought with you a Bible uh, this morning, if you want to turn with me to John chapter 5. Uh, this year we're um, walking through John, and uh, it's, um, uh, it's, it's a fantastic opportunity uh, that this man who walked with Jesus for three years, whom Jesus had called to himself, who he had saved him uh, 50 years after Jesus died and rose again. This same John uh, wrote down the things um, that we have in this book. And he tells us why he did so. He says that I'm writing these things specifically to help you see who Jesus is, but not only to see him, but to believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing that you and I, that we would have life in his name. And so I think one of the most... Um, fascinating, tenuous things that takes place when we as uh, people, in particular those of us who have already trusted Christ, when we read a gospel and when we study through a gospel, either Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, is we find ourselves repeatedly rooting for his life, but we all know that we desperately need his death. And so John is this um, amazing road where Jesus is marching intentionally to a cross to pay for the sin of my own life and your life, all of our lives. And what's interesting is what he does, though, is he shows how this one road has several rest stops that were motivated by his compassion. And that's what we're going to see this morning. And So if you would, let's bow and let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, God, for the, the opportunity that we have to open your word. And we believe that's exactly what we're doing now. We believe that John chapter 5, that the words that are here, that they were inspired by your spirit and the heart of John, And then you preserve them by the power of your spirit through generations all the way down to where we have a copy of this in our own hands. And I pray, Father, that as we read this, that you would speak through weakness of myself, that you would give us, uh, Lord, just incredible clarity to not only be able to believe what this says, but, Father, also to understand it, to apply it to our life, because we believe in believing it, that your word tells us that that we will be transformed and that we will actually experience life, eternal life. And so uh, we ask for your help here this morning, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, you guys know that back uh, the first Sunday in January when I uh, took my new role, uh, there's been four months that have now passed here. If you're new here, um, for 18 years I've actually been at this incredible church. We love Providence. We've been here for a long time. But the last four months in my uh, role now. And, you know, there's a lot of things that, that you um, sort of think about what it's going to be like um, prior to actually having that mantle put on your shoulders. And one of the things that I didn't foresee um, when assuming my new role uh, was how I would receive a lot of resumes from people that I don't know for jobs that we're not, we don't have. Um, and, uh, and, and I say that um, not to, um, uh, not to say don't do it or that that's a burden. The fact is, is that when I receive one, ordinarily I just pray for them because I sympathize with the need and I, I commend, uh, you know, that when somebody has something that they feel like the Lord has put upon their heart, uh, they, these are folks who want to work. And so, so I'm certainly thankful. But I bring that up because um, of something that we're going to see here in John 5. And that is this, is that I've found this... Um, this thing taking place in my own heart when I receive these from people that I don't know. And, and what happens is this, is that normally when you receive a resume from someone that you do not know, 
they typically include some pretty impressive personal claims of what they're able to do in order to get into the door. But what's interesting is when there's a lack of friendship or lack of knowledge of who this person even is, the more impressive the claim, the less likely I am to believe it's true. And this is exactly what we find here in John chapter 5. Is Jesus and some of these Jewish leaders, they have no relationship. They don't know who each other are. And all of a sudden, Jesus walks into Jerusalem. And he makes the greatest claim that's ever been made by a person on this earth. And instead of worship, what we find is a tremendous amount of resistance. And so let's read it. This is what it says. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades or porches. In these lay a multitude of folks who are blind and lame and paralyzed. One man who had been there as a invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. It says the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life To whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all authority to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Now you remember that John's intent is not only to lead us to believe that Jesus is the Christ so that we can have life in his name, but he has also reinforced time and time again, beginning in John chapter one, verse 14, where he says that the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. And as a result of us seeing is that we experience both grace and truth. And so what John is doing here once again is he's unpacking yet another experience that he had with Jesus. And he's writing it down specifically, not only to lead us to life, but to lead us so that our eyes can be opened up to be able to see Jesus for who he really is. Because when you see Jesus for who he is, you really understand a whole lot more about who you are and how we are to live in his world. So I want to show you three more things that are true about Jesus in this task. The first is this, is that Jesus purposefully enters our brokenness to heal our greatest need. He purposefully enters at the point of our brokenness in order to heal our greatest need. Now you need to see in this and you need to hear this really, really clearly because we associate the area of our brokenness as our greatest need. And that's not what I said. Sometimes he looks and he sees that the area of our brokenness is the area of greatest need and that's what he wants to address. But oftentimes... We look at a circumstance that causes stress or, or problem and we think that's my greatest need. And oftentimes what he does is he wants to work through that circumstance in order to heal something so much bigger and deeper and more important to him. And that might be our heart. It might be the motives of our heart. So here in this text, you're going to find Jesus identifying somebody's brokenness and moving there. And in this case, He is going to heal that area only to get to a more substantial and important need in his life. And that's his own heart. And so look what it says. It says that Jesus is now back in Jerusalem. Now, don't forget, right? John hits fast forward. We were just in Galilee last week. And now all of a sudden we're right back down. And so his second full year of ministry is encapsulated in a chapter half. Right. So it's he's going to go really, really fast until we get to Jerusalem the last time. And then he's going to take 10 chapters for the last week of Jesus life on earth. And so uh, uh, the amount of material always equals the level of importance. Okay, and so we're ramping to something He's going to slow way, way down. But all of a sudden he's back in Jerusalem and we're told that there's a sheep gate. This sheep gate was really, really important. It was in the north part of the wall leading into the temple. And as you would expect, that's where sheep entered. So when the sheep came for the feast, when all the Jews gathered, they all pilgrimed to Jerusalem for this enormous feast. Well, there was tremendous amount of sacrifices. And so what they would do is they would take these sheep and in order to get them into the place where the altar was, where they would die, they would go through this gate. Well, near this gate was a pool. And this pool, we're told, it had five porches. And those porches, they would serve as uh, real protection from the elements. And so if you can imagine that there's all these people here, and there's some people who live there. Well, 
All depending on your need, you may be looking for shelter. And these people were. What we're told is that this place became a, 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 a temporary home for multitudes of hurting people as they gathered in this place. And so you can think of this pool. It's a fascinating thing. We were, we were actually there and we, we, we saw it. It's not a huge area. But it says here there was multitudes of people, invalids who were blind and lame and paralyzed, and some of them had caregivers. And so this was the environment that was, that was here. Now, the pool was likely stirred by a spring that kind of sprung up just randomly. And they'd be waiting for the pool to be stirred. But there was, there was um, popular belief at the time really attributed the stirring of the water to an angel. And as a result of that, many of these people gathered specifically at this place because they thought, well, the first person in after the angel stirs the water gets healed. Now, let's just do some work here, okay? Um, uh, we, I promise you, we'll get right back to the story, but there's two things that are really important here. First of all is that we have no evidence within the scriptures or anywhere else that anyone was actually healed by the water. Okay? I, don't, I can't say that they were or, or weren't. I'm just saying it's not within the book, okay? But you also notice, if you were reading through, if you have a more modern translation of the Bible, like the one that I was reading, you'll notice that verse 4 was not in the text. You may notice that we were reading verse 3, and all of a sudden it just goes straight into verse 5. You have to ask the question, well, what happened to the last part of verse 3 and all of verse 4? And the answer is, if it's not in your text, it's at the bottom of your page. And so you can't see my Bible, but basically you have two columns, right, that, 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 that um, all of this is the text. And then at the very bottom, actually I'm on the wrong page, at the very bottom there's a note down here. And this is what it says. It says, some manuscripts insert wholly or in part, and then it says these words. Waiting for the moving of the water. Verse 4. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain times into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So now we have to ask this question. You think, okay, is the Bible credible? How come one translation has verse 4 in? How come one doesn't? Like, why is, like, what, what's wrong with verse 4, you know? And the answer as best as I can understand, is this. After John wrote this book, of course, there was no Xerox machines back then. And yet it was a really, really important letter that was sent out to one specific person. There was one copy of it. Well, a lot of people wanted it, and God wanted it to be spread about. So what would happen is people began to copy it. Now, let's just say that we did this, that instead of me preaching this morning, I said, this is what I want you to do. Here's a piece of paper and a pencil. I just want you to write out word for word exactly this page of the Bible. And all of us did that. Well, there's a good chance that after just one generation of that copy is that the great majority of us would nail it. Maybe one or two of us might forget it, the dot and I or something like that. And well, But then let's just say we took your copy and we sent your copy to a city that didn't have that copy. And all of a sudden they're like, this is so good. We want to copy it for everyone in our village. And so then everyone's all right. Well, now what we're doing, though, is we're taking your handwriting we're taking your copy and, um, and, and sending it out. And so what we now have is this, okay? Currently today, there are literally thousands of these ancient manuscript copies that have been preserved all the way down to this day. There's about 5,500 of them. 
And every now and then, what we'll find is a variance, meaning, meaning, meaning like what we see right here, where one copy will have this verse up in the text and one of them won't. And you think, oh my gosh, well, see, I told you the Bible's not reliable. There's no credibility in it whatsoever. But the most amazing thing is when you look at just written antiquity, just words, just um, all these works that were written in the first century and sometimes even before, and how many copies we have of them, normally there's like one or two or three. Shakespeare, things like this. There's, there's like hardly any proof that what you have is actually what Shakespeare wrote because there's just so few copies of what he wrote. Well, today we do not have the original manuscript from John's own pen. We have copies of these things. But we have 5,500 copies of these things. And so what we do, I say we as if I'm in a room doing this, okay? It's not me, but is is that anytime we identify a variance where that looks like an A instead of an O, what we do is we go back and the breadth of all of the manuscript copies that we have allow us to identify what was original and perhaps what was not. And anytime that there's doubt whatsoever, a note is made just like what we have right here, where the words still find themselves on the page. They're still printed. What we're asking is, did John write that or did someone else write that? And I personally believe, as do many people who are much smarter than I, believe that John didn't write this. And the reason is because in that one little sentence that I read, there's seven words that John never uses in anything that he's written in the Bible, which is four different book, five different books. And, so, and it's not like these are names of cities and places like that. They're just natural language. And so if you identify words in what you think I've written, but you know that I never talk like that. There's a good chance that maybe I didn't write that down. And so what we see here is this, is that I believe personally is that that one little verse was perhaps copied by a copyist and he drew or she drew a marginal note that talked about the legend of the water and that at some time it got inserted into the text. And now as we look at the breadth of everything that we have, we look and we go, you know what, maybe that should be down in the note. Now for some of you think, why in the world did you just spend all that time talking about that? And the reason is because I care very, very deeply that you believe the book in your hand is the word of God. And every time you don't see one of those notes, which is about 99.999% of all the text in that Bible, there's no note. And what that means is we have great confidence that what you have there is precisely what was written by John or Peter or whoever else was writing. Okay? All right, let's get back to the story. So most of these Jews who were pilgriming to Jerusalem during this time, they avoided this pool. And the reason is because there's just a level of discomfort. And, and it's an obvious, like most of us don't vacation to the hospital, you know? There's a discomfort and just being around um, the, the, the um, sickness and difficulty. It, it reminds us how frail we are. It reminds us that our body, too, is falling apart and, 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 and that there's going to be a need. And so most of the Jews avoided this part of of town, but not Jesus. Jesus marches right there, and I believe he does so is because Jesus is always running towards thorn bushes because that's where people were caught. And there were people there who he wanted to reach, in particular this one. It says that so Jesus came, he saw a man who'd been suffering for 38 years. 
38 years. And he walks up to him and he asks him, do you want to be healed? And instead of nodding and smiling or rejoicing or doing whatever he could to insinuate, yes, yes, I want to be healed. He laments his inability to get into the water. Now, this is kind of like telling the sun that gives all the warmth to the earth. We don't need your warmth today because we're going to try really hard to fit ourselves into our baby's onesie. You're standing next to the creator of the universe. The creator of your body, the ultimate healer of all things. He asked, do you want to be healed? And his answer was, it's hard to get in that water. Not only can he not get in the pool, but we have every evidence from scripture that says even if he got in there, he wouldn't be healed. And so what Jesus does is he ignores his whole comment and he just says, look, get up. Take up your mat and walk. And all of a sudden, muscle tissue that had literally gone through 38 years of atrophy came to life. A miracle. And we're told that Jesus then withdrew. And he did so because it says, as there was a crowd, meaning to do a miracle in that place at that time would cause bedlam if everybody, if he just stayed there. So he leaves, but then he goes right back and he finds him in the temple later that day. And he comes to the man. I want you to think about what he's doing here. He goes to the man and he tells him the real issue that he's been healed physically. And he says this, see, you're well. Now sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What can be worse than 38 years of paralysis? And the answer is eternity in hell. Do you see what he's doing? He's entering into a place of brokenness purposefully in order to meet even a greater need than 38 years of paralysis. Jesus is basically saying to him these words. He goes, look, I healed your body and this is a gift. You didn't even acknowledge me. You still don't. We have no evidence that this man was ever saved. When Jesus says, this is who I am, he doesn't worship Jesus. He goes and tells the Pharisees on Jesus. He says, I, I did this to show you that I can heal your soul. You were broken physically, but you're still broken spiritually. And so I want to ask you, this is what he's saying. Let the gift of my healing over you be the means to your holiness. Don't turn from me right now and use your new muscles to resource a life of sin. Believe in me and you'll have full life. See, this is what Jesus does. He identifies whatever your place of brokenness is. He says, I'm going right there. But he may not heal that area because there's always something maybe deeper that he says, I want to get there, but to get there, I'm going to go through this. And this is exactly what he does. So two points of application for us. The first is this, is let's allow Jesus' healing to fuel a life of holiness. Holiness. 2 Corinthians 5.15 tells us, for everyone who's in Christ, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. 
You see, God did not make us new in Christ so that we would keep sitting on a hot pile of sin. And so what he's telling us is this, is don't receive the gift that I've given to you and then use that to leverage a life that doesn't need me. I don't know if you guys ever noticed, but when people have a puppy, they typically talk about how smart their puppy is, right? And I think the reason they do that is they're trying to shore up the insecurity in their own life because they're the one who picked the one out of the litter, right? And so, and so you have a puppy, and we just got a puppy a few weeks ago, right? And, and there, was, there was several other puppies we could choose from. And so we picked the one, and all of a sudden, every day, we're trying to fortify our assurance that we picked the, like the smart one by trying to remind ourselves and other people how smart this puppy is. And all of a sudden, my puppy, our puppy, he threw up and he went over and he started eating it. And I thought, I got the dumb puppy. This is the wrong puppy. You know, this is, and you think, why? Why, why would he do that? You see, for me, I look at this puppy and I think, look, you, I'll give you better food than that. You don't have to keep eating that anymore. And sometimes I think God looks at us as believers And he heals us, he adopts us, he brings us into his family, and we still try to go back and eat the meal that we once ate that's now spoiled. The meal of sin where we look back and we go, you know what, yeah, I'm saved, but I still want to live there. And what he's saying here is this, look, if I've healed you in any way, I've not healed you to resource your sin. And so this is a call to repentance, that if we see anything in our life where we say, man, that's not helping me walk towards God, is that we turn from that. We repent. We ask God to forgive us. I think the second application of this first point is this, is let's pray for courage to bring his light to dark places. You see, in John chapter 3 and in John chapter 4, I love that Jesus is intentionally bursting through walls of religion and racism and hatred and disability and sin In order to show his glory to a Jewish man in Jerusalem, a Samaritan woman in Samaria, what we most believe is a Gentile man who's a ruler up in Galilee. Now, why would he be doing this? Well, later on, Jesus is going to rise from the dead. And we get to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And then he speaks to us. And he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see what he's doing? He's going to start in Jerusalem and we're going to go to Samaria and then we're going to go to the ends of the earth where the Gentiles are. And so Jesus is modeling and John is identifying a life of mission that Jesus was on to his own command that he would later give to us in Acts 1.8. And so when you see Jesus walking into the shadows in order to help people at their point of need. You need to recognize that if you have Jesus in you and you're following Jesus, is he's going to lead us to some of those dark shadows also. Not because it's comfortable, because there's people there who need to see the light, who need to hear the gospel. And so when we send teams out to Portland, this last one is going to Portland, Every month, over the next several months, on the fourth Sunday, we're going to be commissioning teams. It's, it's a remarkable thing how many people are going to be going this summer. And the reason we're doing that is because those people in dark places do not have the gospel. But you know, there's other dark places, isn't there? 
even in, even in our own church. You know, we walk in these doors and many of us know a few people who go here. If you don't know anybody who goes here and you're a guest, it looks like we know everyone who's here. And the fact is, is we don't. But you know, when someone walks in those doors, there is a moment, there's, there's, there's one of those dark shadows where I don't know that person. They're probably intimidated, probably overwhelming, but I'm overwhelmed to go and talk to you. And all of a sudden there's this gap. This person doesn't look like me. And what Jesus would call us to do, I believe, even as a church, when you think about hospitality, is that we would literally arm ourselves with courage and pray, God, would you give me courage to be able to go through dark places, insecure places, in order to talk to people who may need to hear about Jesus, who may, need to, who, who may just need a hug, just a reminder that God loves them. And so Jesus purposefully enters our brokenness to heal our deepest need. The second thing I want you to see is this, is that Jesus heals our deepest need to demonstrate his authority. He heals our deepest need to demonstrate his authority. You notice that this day was a Sabbath. You're supposed to go, "Uh uh-oh, when he says in verse 9, now this day was a Sabbath. Typically, the Sabbath was a gift, and and how it should be read is, and you read, and it was a Sabbath, and we're supposed to go, yay, it's a Sabbath. But every time in the Gospels it says something happened and the day was a Sabbath, you're going, uh-oh, it's about to go down right here, right? And that's exactly what happens. The Pharisees get all uptight. The scribes, why? Well, God had given us this day. It was a gift. The Sabbath was literally a gift, a day of rest given by God to restore the impact of six days of work. Because you're going to work six days, you're going to rest one. So one day, Jesus, we're told in Luke chapter 6, Jesus and his disciples are walking through the fields. And there's tall standing grain. And it happens to be a Sabbath. And his disciples, they start just kind of rubbing their hands over it. And every now and then they kind of grab a little stalk and they rub it. And the chaff falls off and there's grain. And they're just kind of snacking on the grain. The Pharisees get all uptight because they're farming. Right? They've, 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 they've broken a rule, one of their rules. And so Jesus says to them in Luke chapter 6 verse 5, he says, Guys, look, the Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. And then he really, really just knocks him across the head. And he goes, look, by the way, and the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, I happen to be the God who created the whole thing. I'm the one who gave you that law to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. I'm the Lord of it. Well, as you can imagine, that didn't go over so well. And what we're told is the Pharisees, they took this amazing gift this day that was meant to bless us. And they literally wrote and created 39 laws specific to the Sabbath of how we could bless it. I mean, leave it to human beings to make rest both complicated and exhausting, you know? And Jesus knew this was the Sabbath. He knew these were the laws. And he knew what he was asking him to do when he said, stand up, And take up your mat. He knew that that was a violation of one of their laws. You see, Jesus said, look, I've not come to the earth to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. But you have to understand the laws that he came to fulfill were his laws, not ours. And he did exactly what he said that we should do. Now, he knew all this. And yet what he does is he walks over and he decides to poke this legalistic bear. 
Let's just see what happens. And all of a sudden it says he heals the man and he tells the man specifically to pick up his mat and start walking. And as you can expect, they get livid. So you've got to ask the question, why would he poke this bear? I mean, he could have healed him and gone, hey, you and me, all right, we're good. All right, and walked off, right? No one knows, everything's cool. No, he says, no, let's, let's do something that's going to make a scene. Pick up your mat. <laughs> you see, Jesus is always moving from the lesser to the greater. Our problem is we get confused as to what's greater and what's lesser. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 6, there's a paralyzed man, and Jesus walks up to him, and he says, your sins are forgiven. And the Jewish scribes, they go, what kind of audacity do you have to walk up to someone and say, your sins are forgiven? I mean, that would be an absolutely arrogant thing to do unless you're God, right? Fortunately, he was. Well, they get all uptight, and so Jesus responds to them, and he says, look, Matthew chapter 9, verse 6, he says, That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. In other words, he's saying, Look, I know you guys value healing so big and you think it's so important, but actually, what's more important than that is that I can forgive sin. But to startle you to the place that you can recognize that I can actually do the greater thing, I'm going to do a lesser thing. And I'm going to tell these cells to regenerate in this man's life. And he's going to get off his mat. and He's going to walk. Do you realize that we so struggle seeing this because we are so uh, passionate about living? Our physical body just has so much of a hold over us. And he cares so much about eternity because this thing, this, this is really short while we're here. And so... You have to ask, okay, so what are we supposed to do with this? Well, I think two things. The first is this, is let's yield our lives to the authority and grace of Jesus. You see, ever since the fall, our flesh, which has wanted to contribute so much to our salvation, has resisted grace. Have you ever noticed that? That your flesh at its core does not want help. You want to earn it, and so do I. This is why the man who's been sick for 38 years wants to get into the pool by himself. This is why the Jewish leaders wanted to get to heaven by themselves, by creating all these rules. This is our heart's default position, and it's so exhausting, which is why Jesus says, come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth, in order to live a righteous life and go specifically to a cross to pay for our sin. And then he rose from the dead. And therefore, when we understand and see what he's made available, we can yield to say, man, that kind of God that would do that kind of thing and that kind of love is someone that I can yield my life to. You have to trust that he's willing to do that. You see, there's another thing that was interesting about this sheep gate and this pool is this was the pool that they would wash the animals on the way to sacrifice at the feast. Now think about Jesus, the Lamb of God, watching animals, sheep, lambs, literally come through this pool, and everyone's hoping this pool's going to clean everybody. And it's only his blood that can get it done. 
He's watching everything take place. All the sacrifice, all the ritual, all the, all the brokenness, all the fallenness, all of this. He's watching. He says, only if you believe in me and trust in me can you find true healing. I think the second really practical application is this. is Let's rest one day each week. You see, nobody in this room has received a body so perfect that you're exempt from the need to rest it one day a week. God Almighty said, I built you that you need a day of rest. And you're not above that. And if you violate that for long, you always break down. A day of rest. I don't want to be a Pharisee and start adding rules to things, for sure. But let me tell you one thing that I've learned about a day of rest. Every time you see the word Sabbath in the Old Testament, in in the instruction, it's always unto the Lord. And he says, so six days you shall work. On the seventh day, the Sabbath, you shall rest, for the Sabbath is holy unto the Lord, meaning it's God word. What I've found about rest is this, is that even though I have tried many, many times, that sometimes when we think of vegging as our rest, I'm going to sit before the TV and watch trivial things for eight hours because I'm exhausted and tomorrow's Monday and I'm going to rest all day today. What we find is that we're actually more tired at the end of a day of triviality than we are at a day of work. And so I would just encourage you, as you consider your rest day, whether you're biking or watching television or, or having conversation or on the phone or hiking or whatever it is you're doing, is your heart is focused Godward. That's where the rest is at. The last thing I want you to see is this, is first of all, we saw, right, is that Jesus enters our brokenness to meet our need. He meets our need in order to demonstrate his authority. But then notice this, is he demonstrates his authority to prove his deity. This one will go short, but it's also really, really important. So listen carefully. It's amazing to me that when we get to this point, Jesus, when everybody's all stoked up because of what he's doing on the Sabbath, is he chooses to poke the bear again. He says to him these words, he goes, you're persecuting me, but my father is working until now and I'm working also. In other words, Jesus doesn't take a rest on the Sabbath from listening to people's prayers today. He's not, he's not saying, wait a second, no, this is the Sabbath, I've got to rest too, right? So what he's saying when he says, look, our father in heaven, he doesn't take a day off and neither do I. All of a sudden, you're like, wait a minute. And, this, and, and they start wanting to kill him because now he's saying, wait, you're making yourself equal with God. And instead of retreating, oh, that's not quite what I meant. What he does is he decides to poke the bear again. He says, the son can do nothing with, on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he's doing. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. And, and then instead of retreating for there, he, Jesus goes out to the zoo and he gets one of those sticks with, with, the, with the hot electrical current on the end. And all of a sudden he pushes it up to that bear again. And he gives him a really good poke one last time. And he says this, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Now, these are people that are basing everything they're doing on the presumption that they are honoring God the Father. All of their life, all of their religion, all of their decisions, everything is based on honoring God the Father. And Jesus stands in front of them and he says this, unless you bow and recognize me as the Son of God, you can never honor him. Now, today, you see, this this matters in our culture too. In this pluralistic, secular 
everything goes, everyone gets the same trophy for however bad your idea is kind of world. We have people that are saying, but these people who are worshiping whoever, they're so sincere. And what Jesus is saying here is this. Is that no matter how sincere a person is in their faith, the one true God in heaven is not honored if Jesus is not worshipped as his son. You've got to do something with this kind of claim. What they did was they said, let's kill him. What are you going to do with that claim? Well, I pray to God that you do the application, which is last. And it's let's honor Jesus by believing him at his word. That you bend the knee. You know, God doesn't make you bend the knee now. One day it will. The Bible says that one day every single knee will bow and will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But we get to do it now if we will yield. And what he says here is this. He goes, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me will have eternal life. He says that he does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. See, if we hear the words of Jesus and believe, he says, we've already received eternal life. We've already been judged. We've already been found innocent. God already, the court of God has already been adjourned. It's already been settled and you've been found righteous if you know Jesus Christ and are believing in him and him alone. So Jesus enters our brokenness in order to meet our need. He meets our needs in order to show his authority. And he shows his authority in order that we would bow our knee and acknowledge that he and he alone is God. All right, so let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness. And I pray, God, that you would use this passage to remind us not only of your authority and deity, but how much you love us personally. God, I pray for each person here that you would examine our hearts even now. And for those that do not know you as Savior and Lord, God, would you lead them right now just to call out to you in belief? To ask you into their life as, your, as their Lord and Savior. Would you forgive them of sin? God, as we take just a moment as we have an offering, Lord, just to think and contemplate about this passage of Scripture. Would you address our heart? God, if there's sin in our life, would you lead us to confess that as sin? Lord, if we are using healing that you've given us and resources you've given us in order to resource our sin, God, would you lead us to repent? God, would you stir the affections of our heart for Jesus again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.